this is an opportunity to, to intently listen and intently read. As we start our um, series in Luke, or I should say restart our series in Luke, I'll be reading from uh, Luke chapter 17, the first 19 verses. So Luke 17 and verse 1. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant, ploughing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down and to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem... Jesus travelled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Good evening, everyone. How are you going? My name's Mark, and uh, it's uh, really lovely to have you here with us tonight. Great to be starting a new series uh, in Luke's Gospel. I'm going to pray for us, because I think um, there's some hard things that Jesus says in that passage. Uh, so we're going to need God's help to wrestle with it. So let's pray. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Uh, well, as John's uh, told us, we are resuming, restarting uh, the, this sermon series in Luke that has taken us years. We, I think this is now year four. It's taken us longer to travel this point in uh, the, the book of Luke than it actually took Jesus to travel this journey that he's on at this point to Jerusalem. Uh, we're in at the end of what's called the travel narrative in Luke, which goes for about 11 chapters, finishes uh, in the middle of chapter 19. Uh, and in this section, the great focus is on the kingdom of God. Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God. And there's really two surprises that, that mark these final chapters that we're looking at over these next eight, eight weeks. I'm going to spoil it for you. I'll tell you what the two surprises are now. Uh, the first surprise about the kingdom of God that Jesus says again and again and again is this surprise about who the kingdom of God is for. And we're going to see that a bunch of times through this series. We see it in our passage tonight in that final, the second section there about the, the story of the ten lepers who are healed. You may know that story. It's quite a familiar kind of little episode. If you know anything about uh, who lepers were, it was a pretty miserable existence to be a leper back in ancient Israel. You weren't allowed to live in the city or in the town. You had to actually go and live outside the town so that you didn't infect anybody with this really contagious disease. Uh, and so these, these lepers, as they lived their life, they actually, everywhere they go, every time they came near other people, they had to call out and tell people that they were coming. So they would yell, unclean, unclean, so that people knew that a potential disease carrier was coming nearby. I don't know if you can imagine what that would be like, you know, to have everybody view you as a potential transmitter of a disease and having to socially distance. I mean, it's so hard to imagine what that experience would be like. But anyway, these lepers, and we find out in the story that of these lepers, uh, one of them is a Samaritan. The Samaritans, of course, were that kind of like Jewish half-breed. They, they were the ones who had compromised the Jewish religion, and people hate, the Jewish people hated them. And, and in this little episode that you get at the end of this chapter, uh, Jesus heals these ten lepers, but it's one of them, this, this Samaritan leper, who is the only one who gets it. He's the only one who recognizes Jesus for who he is, and he comes back and falls at Jesus' feet and thanks him. And Jesus says right at the end of the passage, he says, your faith has made you well. Literally, the words are, your faith has saved you. This man, this Samaritan leper, has entered the kingdom of God. He's been saved. And he is the most unlikely convert, the most unlikely citizen of heaven. It's this upside-down kingdom that Jesus is going to show us. The, the down-and-outs, the despised, the lowly ones, they're the ones who get into the kingdom of God and they get in quick. They get in easy. This guy just has simple faith in Jesus, and he's been saved. And we're going to see that surprise a bunch of times across this series. The second surprise that we're going to see over and over again in this series, and it's the surprise we're really going to focus on tonight, is the surprise about what the kingdom of God is like. Now, uh, there are lots of groups in this world, lots of organizations, lots of clubs that you can join that will require either nothing or next to nothing of you. Uh, I did a little exercise not that long ago where I cleaned out my wallet. I had one of those George Costanza wallets that are like this thick uh, because I had accumulated uh, a whole bunch of membership cards for things I don't even remember signing up for. These are some of them. Uh, these are the ones I kept. There were more that I threw out as well. Uh, I had accumulated all these membership cards for shops and programs and things I, I don't remember signing up for. I suppose you get them when you make a purchase or something and uh, they say, would you like to join? You say, yes, fine. They give you a card, you put it in your wallet and you forget about it, right? I discovered in doing this exercise and cleaning out my wallet, I was a member of the Katmandu Rewards Club. No idea when I joined that. don't know how that happened. Maybe somebody signed me up instead. Uh, but my membership of the Katmandu uh, Rewards Club, if somebody had said to me, what is it like 
in that club? In that, what is it like to be a member of that club? That's a nonsense question that you would have asked me, right? I, ha- I had no answer to that question because being a member of that club has no bearing on my life whatsoever. It doesn't change the way I live. I'm, as far as I'm aware, there's not a code of ethics, a code of conduct for being a member of that club. Uh, I have no idea who else is in that club, and it certainly doesn't sort of give me any extra affinity to anybody else. If you're in that club as well, great, but it doesn't change the way I relate to you particularly. It was quick and it was easy to come into that club, and then I forgot about it because it has no bearing on my life. Put it in my wallet and eventually threw it out. Entry into the kingdom of God is quick. It's easy. It's as easy as having faith in Jesus and being saved. Now, does membership in his kingdom, in his club, have little bearing on our lives as well? Because it's so quick and easy, is it meaningless? Or does being a member of the kingdom of God actually translate to implications for the way we live our lives? Does it have bearing on how we are to relate to one another? Does it have bearing on our life's purpose? The question that we are going to be wrestling with in these first 10 verses of chapter 17 is, what does kingdom membership actually look like? What does kingdom membership actually look like? And I want to tell you right off the bat that what we're going to see is that membership in God's kingdom, far from being insignificant, far from having, uh, you know, entering God's kingdom and then forgetting about it, Membership in God's kingdom changes your life in big, costly, significant ways. It changes how you relate to one another day by day by day. And I think that as as we study these words tonight, doing this in 2021, after the year that we've had in 2020, where, let's be honest, being a member of God's kingdom, being a Christian, has not meant for us in 2020 what it normally means for us. There's been less expectations on us. These words from Jesus tonight are going to be kind of a recalibration for us, I think. They're going to set our expectations about really what's going on. If you are a Christian and if you are in God's kingdom, well, then what does it mean to belong to this church? Jesus is going to recalibrate our expectations. He's going to show us three things that it means to belong to his kingdom. First thing that he's going to show us is that in his kingdom, there is no tolerance for sin. In Jesus' kingdom, there is no tolerance for sin. Uh, In the house that uh, my wife Catherine and I are living in at the moment, and in fact in the house that we lived in before this, we had a problem, we do have a problem with wasps. I don't know whether the wasps followed us from our previous house to this one. Uh, But we seem every week to notice wasps building new nests. And um, I don't know if you've ever had to deal with wasps, but wasps are no joke, man. Wasps will mess you up. You don't want wasps living at your house, let me tell you. Uh, We made the mistake early on, the first time we, we noticed wasps living you know, underneath our gutters and stuff, we just sort of turned a blind eye to it and went, oh, that's a shame. I'm, I'm sure they'll get bored and move on. That's, you know, maybe that's what wasps do. Just ignore it and hope it kind of goes away. Uh, we, we learned that that was a mistake because wasp nests balloon really quickly. <laughs> I don't know whether they're like inviting their friends over or something, having a party, but like soon we had lots of, too many wasps living at our house, which meant, you know, you, you basically surrender half your deck because you can't go down that end anymore. And so we, we learned a lesson that you actually have to have a no-tolerance policy with wasps. And so here's our strategy when it comes to noticing wasp nests. It doesn't matter how big they are. Our policy is strike first, strike fast, right? You've got to be ruthless. You deck yourself out in long sleeves, put the hood on, the goggles, all that stuff, get the spray, run up to it, spray it, and then run back inside, lock your doors, close your windows until the wasps leave. That's our strategy, at least. No-tolerance policy because you do not want to trifle with wasps. They will mess you up. Well, it, 
in a similar kind of way, Jesus said Christians are to have a no-tolerance policy when it comes to sin. The presence of sin in his kingdom is not something that we can just turn a blind eye to and hope that it goes away and just ignore. Let's read again verses 1 to 3. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to stumble are bound to come. But woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. This is a strong warning from Jesus here. Watch yourselves. Literally saying, beware, be on your guard here. Woe to anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble. That's the warning. Don't cause a little one to stumble, Christian, disciple of mine. Don't cause a little one to stumble. Now, who are the little ones? Well, I think it's obvious from the context, it's obvious from the the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 18, that the little ones, they're not children, they're believers, they're followers of Jesus. Anyone who is a Christian, who trusts Jesus, that's who Jesus calls a little one. Do not cause a Christian to stumble. What does he mean by that? Don't cause them to stumble into sin. Woe to anyone who causes a Christian to stumble into sin. Now, if you've been uh, an astute reader of Luke's Gospel, or if you can remember a few years ago when we were working our way through some of the earlier chapters, you'll know that actually that warning there, that, that thing that he says to his disciples, he said it before in the Gospel. But it wasn't directed to his disciples then. It was actually directed to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, And he has a a massive go at them because they are causing his little ones to stumble into sin. And I want to remind you of of the sort of thing he said to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law back in chapter 11. So let's read. Chapter 11, uh, Jesus says, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered and you've hindered those who were entering. You see, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they, they had, by their misguided teaching, their misunderstanding of the Bible, and through the example of their life and their calling of people to this and that and other behaviours, they were leading Jesus' little ones astray, leading them away from the truth, leading them into sins, like pride and hypocrisy that the Pharisees were so famous for. And now Jesus is saying, not to the Pharisees anymore, but to us, to his own people. He's saying, Christians, don't cause one another to sin like the Pharisees are doing. Jesus knows right, that there are going to be plenty of things in this life, and you and I know this as well. There are plenty of things in this life that can and do cause us to to sin. Jesus says these things are inevitable. They're bound to come. Because think about it, we have an enemy, don't we? An enemy who is really at work in this world, who wants to tear us away from Jesus and wants to lead us into sin. But more than that, we are living in a world that is broken, that is corrupted by sin. And so there are always going to be ample temptations for the Christian to stray from the truth. Of course there are going to be things that cause Christians to stumble. Jesus knows that. But he's saying that in his kingdom... Membership of his people shouldn't be like that. There should not be those kind of temptations coming from inside his kingdom. His kingdom is to be a safe haven from that sort of thing. Within the church, people should not cause others to sin. It would be better, verse 2, for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck 
than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. Let that sink in for a minute there. This is a serious warning from Jesus, isn't it? This is not a trivial thing. I'd really prefer it if you didn't do this. Jesus is saying, it is preferable for you to die a horrible death right now than for you to make this error of causing one of his little ones to stumble. I can't think of many other places in the Bible where Jesus says something that's as sharp and as confrontational as that. It tells us a couple of things, doesn't it? The seriousness of this warning. It tells us, first of all, just how much Jesus cares for us. If he is being this protective over us and over people who would cause us harm and lead us astray from him, he must really love us. That should be the first thing we notice. But we should probably secondly notice just how serious sin must be for Jesus to respond like this. Jesus knows, you see, that sin is that thing that incurs the wrath of Almighty God. Jesus knows that sin is that thing that separates us, God, forever. And so Jesus wants to keep that poison out of our lives, the lives of the little ones that he loves. Let me just ask you, do you share Jesus' attitude here? When you, when you look around this room, do you have that same burning desire for it to be free from sin, for your brothers and sisters to not be stumbling into sin? Do you share Jesus' attitude here? Are you conscious of just how important it is for you not to cause other people to sin? Because there are plenty of ways that we can do that, aren't there? Just like the Pharisees, through our words, through what we say to one another, we can inadvertently, perhaps even deliberately, cause other people to sin. We can either reinforce the truth of the gospel and strengthen people's faith with our words, or we can lead them into error and doubt and division. Our words can cause people to sin, but you know what else can? The example of our lives. Because if you're a Christian, if you're somebody who claims the name of Jesus, and yet you are harboring sin in your life, you are communicating to your brothers and sisters that that's okay to dabble in that kind of sin. And hey, maybe some other Christians will notice that and think, well, I guess that's, that's, maybe that's not sin. Maybe it's not a big deal. Maybe Christians can be okay with sin. Your words and your example are important. They can cause your, your brothers and sisters to sin. Hear what Jesus says. Woe to anyone, and that includes you and I, who causes one of these little ones to stumble. I hope, friends, that you are starting to get uncomfortable with this and that you're starting to realize how much of a responsibility we bear towards one another in the kingdom of God. So what are we to do with this warning? What should that translate to in our lives? Have a look at verse 3. We are to care for one another, care enough about each other, so that when a fellow believer sins, and remember they will, it's inevitable, Jesus said temptations are bound to come, that when they sin, we take it seriously and we rebuke them. That's what we are to do about this. And what Jesus is talking about here is not necessarily, and not exclusively, when somebody sins against you. In the NIV translation of verse 3 there, it says when a, a brother or sister sins against you. But the words against you are not in the original language. The NIV had added them in to try and sort of make sense of, of what's saying there. Uh, so it, it can be, and it should be, any time we see sin within the Christian community, what, what is our response? We are to rebuke that brother or sister in Christ for harboring sin. We don't turn a blind eye to it. We don't just hope it goes away on its own like my wasp nests. 
we view it as seriously as Jesus does. We care about that person enough to have the hard conversation, to rebuke them. If you're a member of God's kingdom, you ought to have no tolerance for sin in your life and in the lives of your brothers and sisters. Now, for some of you, uh, that prospect, uh, maybe, maybe that gets some of you excited, I don't know. Maybe for some of you, having Jesus give you a license to go and rebuke your brothers and sisters is like, you know, you're gearing up for a, a few robust conversations over dinner tonight or something. You might have some bullets already in the chamber you're ready to fire off. Uh, some people, perhaps, are like that, ready to rebuke. But I suspect that for the vast majority of us here, Jesus telling us that he expects this of us, oh, that, that's a heavy burden to bear, right? Because we don't find rebuking our brothers and sisters very easy. And I reckon that's because of the Englishness of our culture, okay? I'm an Englishman, so I can criticise the Englishness of our culture. You can't. Uh, but the English, right, we are famously polite, We are famously non-confrontational, and I reckon that's what's wrong with Australian culture at some point as well. We're too afraid of offending one another. The Australian attitude is, well, look, it's none of my business. You you get on with your life, I'll get on with mine. We won't necessarily have to get much to do with each other and just live our own lives. That's the Australian attitude. And sadly, that's true for Christians as well. The truth for Australian Christians, too often, I reckon, is that we are more comfortable speaking the truth in love about a person then we are speaking the truth in love to a person. And that's a a real problem for us, that our politeness gets in the way of actually caring for one another enough to rebuke one another. But you know, the interesting thing is that the kingdom of God cares not for our cultural norms. Jesus just cuts right across that. It doesn't matter what culture we come from, what's normal for us, if you're a citizen of the kingdom, this is your normal. Rebuke one another when you see sin in one another's lives. And you know... There's a problem behind this problem, behind our reservation. The problem is that we don't really see sin as seriously as Jesus does. Because if we did, if we saw it as that destructive, poisonous thing that separates people from God for eternity, then we would be quick to rebuke, wouldn't we? We would have the attitude of James chapter 5. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That ought to be our attitude and so we ought to be quick to rebuke out of love. Do you know, I, in my experience as a Christian, uh, having been rebuked uh, more times than I can remember, I will tell you that the people in my life who have rebuked me, the friends who have had those conversations with me, without fail, they're the friends who love me the most. And I may not have realized that at the time when I was being rebuked. Being rebuked rarely feels positive, feels good. But in hindsight, I can recognize that the people who are willing to risk my friendship with them, to tell me that I was in sin and to tell me that I was out of step with the Word of God, they were the ones who really loved me. The ones who didn't say anything, well, they didn't love me as much, to be honest. Rebuking is an act of love and it is to be a normal part of the Christian life. That's what normal membership in God's kingdom is to look like. Uh, I think rebuking has got a bad rap maybe because there are some kind of flavours of Christianity that are like really overly oppressive and really controlling. And so we think, no, rebuking kind of belongs to those crazy Christians who are you know, always just like monitoring each other and like hounding each other's behaviour and stuff. No, that's not us. But Jesus says it is us. This is normal Christianity. It's something that we are to do for one another as an act of love. 
Let me, let me pull this point to a close and say that if we're going to obey Jesus' command here, and this is a command, then there's a few things that we need. We need, as I've said, we need to see sin as seriously as Jesus sees it. Uh, we need to love one another enough to risk friendship to have these kind of conversations. And you know what else we need? We need deep relationships with one another. We need to know one another deeply so that we can have these conversations, so there's opportunities for these things. Because the kind of relationships that are all too common in the church where, you know, you smile and nod, little hand wave, you see each other in the hallway on a Sunday, and that's about the, you know, the thinness of your relationships with other Christians, that will not do. <laughs> Those relationships will shatter under the weight of a rebuke like this. They're not built for, for they're not solid enough to handle something as robust as a rebuke. We've got to have deep relationships with one another so that we can see the sin in one another's lives, so that you can see mine and I can see yours. We know that we trust each other. We want the best for each other. And so in love, we're going to have those hard conversations, whatever the cost is, because it's for our good. And so perhaps the implication for us from this point is, is not that over dinner we need to start rebuking people. Maybe we're not at that point yet. Maybe the implication for us is that right now we need to start working on deeper relationships with one another because we can never obey this command unless we have those deep connections within the kingdom. That's the first thing that Jesus says in his kingdom, no tolerance for sin. Second feature of belonging to God's kingdom is that there is to be no limits on forgiveness. We're to be people who are quick to pounce on sin. We do not tolerate it in our communities, but it's got to be matched by grace and forgiveness. Have a read again of verses 3 and 4. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Repentance, uh, so rebuke, yes, absolutely, it's necessary. But so is forgiveness, because rebuke without forgiveness is just criticism, and that's not what Jesus is calling us to here. Uh, if, if you are someone who's going to be quick to rebuke, but you're not interested in the, the forgiving and the reconciling work that has to happen later, you're no better than someone who goes to a doctor to kind of get diagnosed for what's wrong with them, but then follows none of their advice about the treatment, the, the, the medicine, the, the treatment plan they're supposed to follow. It's not going to help you if you do that. You know what's wrong, but it's not going to make you better. And in the same way, a rebuke without forgiveness doesn't help anybody. And so notice that what Jesus is, is calling us to as part of his kingdom is, is thorough forgiveness, really thorough forgiveness here. This is not the kind of attitude that says, okay, yeah, you're off the hook. I'm willing to kind of let that go. Uh, that's an easier kind of forgiveness, isn't it, when, when you say that to somebody? I'm not holding it against you anymore. That's fine. If you say to yourself, well, look, I'm, you know, I'm not going to confront that person and tell them what they've done wrong. I'll just forgive them in my heart because the Lord knows you know, my heart. That is not the forgiveness that Jesus is calling us to in his kingdom. It's certainly easier to do that than to go through that hard work of confrontation, rebuke, repentance, forgiveness, restoration, all that stuff. To, to avoid all that relational hardship, I get it. But Jesus says in his kingdom, you don't just wallpaper over sin. You do the costly work of weeding out people's sin and reconciling with them. That's what's actually going to help that person. That's what's going to grow them and heal them. By all means, you know, have that attitude in your heart, that posture of forgiveness, that willingness that if somebody were to repent, that you would forgive them. Absolutely. But let's not fool ourselves that that is sufficient when it comes to actual forgiveness within God's people. 
Jesus says, verse 4, even if people sin against you seven times a day, seven times you'd have to give them if they repent. And he's not saying, you know, seven and not eight or more. His point is that as often as they repent, you forgive. In the kingdom of God, you see, it's not just about... Uh, one of our problems, I reckon, is that we have this second chance mentality as well. We say, I'll forgive you once, but twice, you do that thing to me twice, you're dead to me. I'm going to cut you off. That, friends, has no place in the kingdom of God. Because in the kingdom of God, it's not about second chances. It's about third and fourth and fifth and sixth and a hundredth and a millionth chances. There are no limits on the forgiveness that you get in the kingdom of God. And I tell you, I don't think that there is any other organization, any other group that you could be a member of that is going to accommodate for your failures like the kingdom of God is. That's going to expect and allow and accommodate for when you do things wrong. The kingdom of God is unique in that way. And so forgiveness must be without limit, even to the repeat offender. And if you're like me, then you're probably at this point thinking, wow, that's, that seems like a lot of work. Like, I don't know whether I want to give forgiveness to somebody who, who maybe hurts me that much. It's a lot of forgiveness to offer to somebody, limitless forgiveness. Well, it is a lot, isn't it? But then you get a lot of forgiveness, don't you? Do you reckon God forgives you seven times a day? I reckon for me, most days, he must forgive me a lot more than that. We must offer forgiveness without limit because that's how God treats us. As Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer, Father, forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. There's a connection between God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others. I wonder if you've, you've ever put yourself in the shoes of God. <laughs> bit of a dangerous exercise to do, but to think, what must it be like for God when we come to Him and repent of sin? Have you ever thought about that? That when we realize that we've committed sin in our lives and we pray to God, Lord, I confess that I've done this thing again. It's not catching God by surprise. He knows that we've done it. Perhaps we're coming and we're repenting of the same sin that we've been repenting of for years and years and years. And what does God say to us at that point? Does He say, what are you talking about? I'm not going to forgive you. You did that same thing yesterday. No, no forgiveness. You're not serious about it. No, he doesn't say that, does he? He says, of course I forgive. I've already forgiven you. You are completely forgiven. God probably knows, even when we're confessing, that we're going to be back you know, within the hour doing the same thing again, and yet there are no limits on his forgiveness of us. And Jesus is saying, that's the attitude that we are to have in his kingdom. That's what it looks like. No cynicism. No hesitation, just open-hearted, free forgiveness to the one who repents. And it does sound like a tall order. The disciples think it's a tall order. And so they say, verse 5, Lord, increase our faith. I mean, you can hear the kind of skepticism in their voice. You really want us to do this, Jesus? Increase our faith because that you know, seems really beyond us. And what does Jesus reply? It's essentially, oh, you have little faith. Verse 6, he says... If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. His point, essentially, from this story is that if you have a, a small amount, of faith, any amount of faith is enough to make a, a tree be uprooted and thrown into the sea. And so the tiniest amount of faith that you might have is more than enough to forgive the people that Jesus is calling you to forgive. He's saying, have faith in me. Trust me. Trust the strength that I am going to provide for you to do that thing that you think is so beyond you. Because it's not. In my kingdom, no limits of forgiveness, and I'll help you. 
the promise of verse 6. And I think at this point, it's almost as if Jesus kind of wants to put a final nail in the coffin to this objection. It kind of feels like, oh, I don't know whether I can do what you're asking me to do here, Jesus. And so the final kingdom attitude that he shows, what it looks like to belong to the kingdom, thirdly, is that for those in the kingdom, there is no negotiation on service. No negotiation on service. Let's have a read again in verses 7 to 10. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? (laughs) Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready to wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that, you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We've only done our duty. It's kind of obvious that this comical story Jesus tells, a master doesn't wait on his servants. No, that's not how it works. He doesn't coax them into obedience to try and kind of reward them. If he's the master and they're the servants, then they do what they're told. Pretty simple point, right? And so for us, if a good slave obeys his master, how much more should we, as the beloved children of God, do what our kind master tells us to do? You see, our obedience to God's instructions, our service of God, is not something that we can negotiate with Him. This is not a deal where we reach across the table and come to a compromise. God is not going to let us off the hook for certain things that we might personally find too hard or prefer not to engage in. No, we are His servants, and so we do whatever it is, whatever it is, that He tells us to do. Now, let me, let me just say briefly, of course, there are lots more things that we could say about why we serve God. This is not con- uh, exhaustive of what the Bible says about why we serve God. God is the wise creator, and so his ways are the best ways. It will go well with us if we serve him. That's a good reason to serve him. He has lavished love on us, and so, of course, we want to serve him out of gratitude and thankfulness. Those things are obviously true. But in this section, Jesus is just trying to make one simple point. It's the point that if you're a member of his kingdom, then you should view your obedience to him as a given, as something in which you have no choice because you're his servant. And I I think as Jesus kind of gives this this blunt instruction, he's primarily thinking about the instructions he's just given them in the first six verses, instructions about rebuking and repenting and forgiving and reconciling. He is saying to his disciples, he's saying to us, you don't get to negotiate whether you obey those things. Those things are part of belonging to him. We have no option of saying, oh, that makes me really uncomfortable to confront my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. I'd really rather not, God. Is that okay if I get someone else to do that instead? You are, you're a servant of God. You do what he tells you to do. He is your master. Ours is to be the attitude of verse 10, isn't it? That when we have done everything we were told to do, we should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. It applies to these instructions that Jesus has given us tonight, and it implies to every instruction that Jesus speaks to us through his word. We must obey if we belong to him. And so that's the shape of the kingdom that Jesus wants to lay out to kind of recalibrate our expectations. If you are a member of the kingdom, then there is to be no tolerance of sin. There is to be no limit to the forgiveness that you offer. And there is no negotiation when it comes to service and obedience to your Lord. And 
lest that make the kingdom of God sound like a club you don't want to be a part of, lest that make the kingdom of God sound really oppressive and, and unappealing, then I want to remind you of a story that Jesus told earlier in the gospel in chapter 7, the story of a man who had a great crushing debt wiped out by the one he owed the debt to. And he responds rightly by loving and serving the one who cancelled his debt. Let me remind you that the master who is calling us to this kind of a life, this kind of membership in his kingdom, it's the same master who welcomed the leper, welcomed the unlikely foreigner into his kingdom, forgave his sin and granted him salvation just like that. And it's the same master who has forgiven your sin. And so how can we do anything less than love and obey this master? Let's pray. Kind master, we confess that we have not always rightly understood what it means to be a member of your kingdom and part of your body. Uh, we confess that we have taken too little responsibility for one another. Uh, we confess, Lord, that we must have caused our brothers and sisters to sin through our words, through our actions, through the example of our lives. And God, we are sorry for these things. Please would you forgive us through Jesus. Lord, please would you strengthen the relationships that we have amongst one another here at WBC so that we can love and look out for one another and call one another towards the obedience of faith, uh, towards the rejection of sin and the putting on of righteousness. Please, please grant us the gift of such strong relationships that we'd be pleased to do that. Please fill our hearts with love for one another so that we wouldn't hesitate to have those hard conversations, to love one another well by calling each other to flee from sin. Please fill our hearts with love for you so that we would be glad to obey you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.